I love it when I go to different social events, meet people for the first time, whether it's at a party or anything else. And um, eventually the topic comes round to, you know, well, what do you do for a living? And I'll say, I'm a nurse. And maybe actually then people are going, oh, tell me more. Where do you, where do you work? And, and so the conversation unfolds. However, for my husband, it's not quite the same experience. Um, people would ask him, what do you do for a living? And he'll say, I'm a church pastor. And then it's like, nothing, nothing. And there's hardly ever any questions to follow up to see what that means. And we are in 1 Corinthians and we are working our way through this letter from Paul to a church that he had planted about 18 months previously in the first century. And in this letter, he is addressing certain issues. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 4 today. Um, but at, what Paul does is he identifies different problems and then he brings a gospel-centred solution. And he summarises virtually the whole of 1 Corinthians in the first chapter. And he very strongly makes the claim that he is an apostle called by God. And that he's dealing with things like sanctity, unity and the foolishness that comes from the cross. And so today... Um, we are going to look further in to this letter and we're going to read chapter 4 verses 1 to 13. When we are also trying to grow and this is why we're working our way through a whole letter in the Bible uh, in the New Testament, we're trying to grow in how we read the Bible and how we understand the Bible. So we'll think about what that that scripture meant at the time to the people, to the biblical audience and um, we will look at the, you know, what does it mean with the culture, the language, the time they were in, and then what's the overarching principle of the text, and how does that overarching principle apply to Christians now in the 21st century? So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 to 13. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from the God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers and sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now here Paul gets sarcastic. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. 
You are held in honour, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labour, working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And the problem Paul is addressing here is that this young church in Corinth had started um, making divisions among themselves, different factions following different apostles. One Paul, one Apollos, one Cephas, who was Peter, and even one faction that followed Christ. And Paul is addressing issues regarding leadership and pride. And actually, if we think about our own cultures, uh, we have had in the news over the last year, years and even more recently, if you look at the British government COVID inquiry, um, examples of unhealthy, toxic leadership culture. And not only uh, inside government, but also inside and outside of the church, near and far, and uh, even in both mega churches and not so mega churches. And we are going to look um, even at verse one where Paul starts to define church leadership. And the first example he uses, um, the word he uses is servants. And the Greek um, for this word that he uses was huperitas. And this word was for a lower rower or an under rower. Uh, in the, the, the bottom, the very bottom layer of a three-layer rowing teams, um, about uh, 200 slave rowers rowing with all their might to row the massive um, Greek or Roman trieme ship. And um, they, there would be sails as well, but the steering would be done by the helmsman and everyone was rowing in time. And Paul is defining himself here as a church leader, as the, the lowest of the low, as a servant and um, pulling his weight, um, pulling and putting an effort to see the church make headway. And I wonder if Donald Trump, um, freshly victorious from the New Hampshire primary, would consider himself to be that sort of leader. Would he be quite so triumphant if that was where he was going to be going next? Mahatma Gandhi, who was a civil rights and um, did peaceful action, um, he was that kind of leader. Mother Teresa, who set up hospices um, with um, the most poor people in Indian slums, she was also that sort of leader. In fact, there's a whole management kind of style called servant leadership developed by Robert Greenleaf in the 1970s. And he said, the leadership must first and foremost meet the needs of others. Good leaders must first become good servants. And this is certainly how Paul was describing himself as a, an apostle, a church leader. We've got more recent kind of management books like Simon Sinek, Leaders Eat Last, this kind of um, turning hierarchy on its head and putting the leader at the bottom so that they're serving the needs of both the people they lead and their organisation. Paul then goes on in verse 1 to use another word um, for leader and he uses the word steward. And a steward is someone who looks after the belongings of 
um, the owner, maybe looks after a farm, um, stewards an estate, stewards a business, stewards a home, and um, is called to give an account. They are to be reliable. And Paul's talking about that, you know, that he will be judged according to God's standards, not the Corinthian standards, and they are called to give an account. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that he is going to give an account to God for the way that he leads the church. That it is not for the individual Corinthians themselves to judge him um, and even for him to judge himself. But he knows that it is to God that he will be given an account. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, often I've, I've read this chapter many times before and I'll often read it, you know, from a personal experience, which is how we read the Bible, isn't it? We, we should be reading it, waiting for the Holy Spirit to show us things, to bring to mind, to encourage us, but also to convict us. Um, but here, when we're kind of thinking about this from um, learning together and really studying this letter, we are not only seeing um, from a personal perspective, we're actually seeing that what's been talked about here is that church leaders are being judged as to how they build the church or how they grow the church as a farmer grows a crop and how they build the temple. And, but also Paul turns this challenge on its head and says to the Corinthian Christians themselves, you yourselves will be judged. And Paul starts to talk about um, the um, day of judgment and he starts to warn the Corinthians that um, wh whatever way, just like Jesus said in Matthew 7 verse 1, in whatever way they judge him, they themselves will be judged. Matthew 7 verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. And Paul talks about the day. And this is a phrase that is repeated often in scripture, um, way back with the prophets, but also in the letters. And Jesus himself would talk about the day that he was going to return and judge all men and that people would be called to account and for what they had done and what they hadn't done. Daniel 10, 21 to 23, he um, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells in him. And um, we have here that Jesus and Paul are warning that a day of judgment is coming. And, um, and here in verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 4, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation or his reward from God. And I know that when I say that sort of thing, I'm almost, you know, speaking to different groups of people. To those of you who are asleep and think that everything is fine and that, um, you know, there's nothing to worry about. I'm saying to you, and actually, you know, people like Peter say in his letters too, wake up, 
wake up. There will be a time when you're called to give an account for what you have done and what you haven't done. For those who are coasting along, maybe um, messing around with things that are not godly, um, wake up, wake up. You're losing your inheritance. Wake up and be warned. Paul is warning you. Um, but to those who, when I say something like that, you think, oh, God will see everything about me and I won't measure up. To those who strive to be made right, you need to know the hope that when you put it, your trust in Jesus, it is his reward that when God looks at you on that day of judgment, he, if you have put your trust in Jesus, in his blood to wash away your sins, it is Jesus that he sees. It's the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus truly is able to take away your wrongdoing and to give you his reward. And if you are listening to me here and now, and you do not even know about the things that I'm talking about, this is why. This is why we dig into the Bible together, so that you are not left with the excuse of not knowing, but also so that you get to learn about the rich truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Here we are in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. The price is paid. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, Paul goes on to say that he isn't just a steward of building the church, he's also a steward of the mysterion, the, the knowledge that God has revealed. Uh, not secret mysteries that you have to work out and find out for yourselves, but a mystery laid down before the foundation of the world to be revealed to children and to be revealed to all who seek. And you see, this is the gospel and all that God is, has in store. And we humans get to understand as God reveals to us through the word and the spirit. And again, from that um, chapter in Daniel, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. And Paul is secure in who he is as a servant leader and as someone who stewards well um, what God has given, entrusted with him and who teaches well so that anyone can hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. But he um, goes on to really lay into the Corinthians and that, that sarcasm is so beautifully written, isn't it? And he is calling them up because of their boasting and their pride. And this boasting is rooted in pride, um, pride that regards one person as better than another. Um, they're kind of talking about different apostles, but actually they're doing the same thing themselves. Um, they're making themselves feel better because of race, class, within the church, feeling that some people have better roles than others, and with gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then with this division here, and this lack of unity, as they have factions about different apostles, different leaders, looking at who's eloquent and um, who is wise. And Paul really calls them to account in that verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? 
And that, that question should bring us to humility and it should bring us to thanksgiving. Matthew Henry says, we have no reason to be proud of our attainments, enjoyments or performances. All that we have or are or do that is good is owing to the free and rich grace of God. Boasting is forever excluded. There is nothing we have that we can properly call our own. All is received from God. It is foolish in us, therefore, and injurious to him to boast of it. Those who receive all should be proud of nothing. And Andrew Wilson says, as Paul concludes this section, he asks one of the most beautiful questions in the entire Bible. What do you have that you did not receive? This is Paul's theology in a sentence. All is grace. Everything the Corinthians have and everything Paul has and everything we have is a gift of God. The cross, the spirit, the wisdom of God made known in Christ, any knowledge or insight that they have, they are all gifts. None of us have earned them and none of us deserve them. Grace, more than any other Christian teaching, pulls the rug out from under our self-reliance, our boasting and our pride. If everything we have has been given to us by God, then how on earth can we boast as if it is somehow ours by right? Paul calls them to recognise the grace that everything good has come to them because of God. And um, 1 Chronicles 14, 14 says, Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, God, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. And James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Paul challenges them that they cannot boast in pride or about undeserved gifts. They have all been given to them. And um, pride is so, it's so tempting um, you know, it bolsters us up, doesn't it? It makes us feel, if we can just feel that we're better than someone else, or um, if we can sing our own praises, it just makes us feel better about ourselves. It's so tempting to fall into it. And actually, I can fall into it without even realising it. I was, um, I'd, um, a speaker had come to the church I was in, and I um, met his wife, and I offered to show her where the um, room was, um, where we had a crash for the young children. And as I'm talking to her, I just find my mouth running away with itself. And I start to tell her every single thing I did for the church. And I was recounting area after area where I was serving. And I really, and I, you know, I almost could hear myself talking. I was like, what are you saying? And I just couldn't believe that I was um, going on and about, and just being proud of how I was serving. You see, Paul carries on. He's still mixing a bit of sarcasm as he talks to the Corinthians in his letter. But actually, he starts to really show what the apostles and he's, you know, talking about him and Apollos as an example. Um, but he starts to really talk about, um, you know, how low they will go for the church. How low they'll go in love to honour the church that is serving, build up the people that they want to see grow up in Jesus. And he is almost um, describing um, like a Roman victory parade 
um, that the general comes into Rome with this, the music and the army and all with their weapons and the shouting and the triumph and right at the back of this parade in chains, in chains are the chieftains that were, had been conquered, that had been vanquished and they are being taken in chains to the arena to be executed. And Paul is making that um, description of him and the apostles that they are the last and that they are the ones who are sentenced to death. And he goes on um, talking about the fact that he would work with his own hands um, so that he would earn his living and not be a burden on anyone while he was in, um, you can see that in Acts 18 while he was in Corinth. Um, he says in 2 Corinthians, his, um, another letter to the Corinth, he says, I've laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Jesus himself um, said in Matthew and um, he, Matthew 8, 20, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Paul was simply following Jesus in leading like this. And he, this is so countercultural. Um, Greek and Roman philosophy would never have had leaders um, make so little of themselves or even actually abase themselves in this way. Humility is, was not cultural at the time of this. Paul is being completely countercultural, but he is following Jesus. He even refers um, to him and the other apostles in Greek as perikathama, the scum that accumulates around the rim of a bucket or toilet. And in verse 13, he says, we are the refuse of all things, the offscouring, the debris, the dross, the hogwash, the junk, the leftovers, the offal, the slop, the sweepings, the swill. Can you imagine that on an advert for the London mayoral election or um, Trump and Biden's presidential campaigns? The off swill, the hogwash. You see, Paul was following the ultimate servant leader. And in Isaiah 53, um, it was prophesied that a leader would come and he was called the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Paul was following the suffering God. Jesus came as God in the flesh, fully God, but also fully human. And he came and died a humiliating death, shameful, agonising. And he gave his life that we would know relationship with Father God. He is God come close. He is God as servant. And this is the foolishness of the cross. 
And this is the gospel solution that Paul brings to pride. Because you see, um, John Piper says that pride essentially is unbelief. Unbelief that we, that we would ever need a God to save us or need the gifts of our Heavenly Father to make us anything or need the salvation of a suffering servant. And the God who came in low calls us to go low. I had a dream um, about a year or so ago and I actually had the dream twice and it was about being led somewhere and um, we were going down and down and actually in the end I had to crawl right down in the dust to get to where we were going and I felt it was just this challenge of going in low into people's lives, going in low into my own life and the way I speak and lead my life and I don't always manage it at all. Um, but it's it's just such a lesson and I do um, feel that if more church leaders and even anyone in the church went, went in low that we would cause less harm and less hurt and if you are somebody who has not been offended by the gospel but been offended by the church or even harmed by the church or by church leaders because we have added pride to grace, that we have looked down on others or not come in as a suffering servant, not gone, gone low in love, then we ask for your forgiveness. Um, and we come actually in a place of humility now. And I think also even, you know, knowing that place of letting go of our pride and going in low to receive the gift of the suffering servant, the suffering God, the servant God. And you see, that's what's going to make a difference to us. When we go out into our everyday week, whether it's in your learning place, you know, your place of study, or in your family, in your work, whether it's paid or unpaid, in every aspect of your life, when we are a follower of the servant God, we are a follower, follower of the suffering servant of Jesus who came as God come low, then we get to be servant leaders in whatever context we are in. We get to be servant leaders who display the mystery that God reveals freely through Jesus Christ. And we get to live out servant leadership leadership that goes low.